Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks. So here we are, our first serving of extra helpings for season seven. And Mikey, you want to take us back to that first episode about the spies because you've got another story about the fat gluttons. Yeah, exactly, mate. Well, we were talking about Therese, the French spy. Yes. And I mentioned that he used to make a living as a touring glutton. Mm. And a few people saying, yeah, come on, is that true? Well, yeah, it was. Right from, you know, even before medieval times, there were guys who would tour, and pretty much always guys, who would tour around as gluttons putting on shows. It's a bit of a thing. Well, the most famous one comes from the 17th century in England, a guy called Nicholas Wood. Mm. Now, Nicholas, he had a day job as a farmer, but he toured all through rural Kent performing feats of gluttony at local fairs. Mm. Like, such triumphs as, well, one time he, he ate 72 rabbits. What? Or consuming a feast that was designed for a gathering of eight soldiers. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, he would actually take wages on how much he could eat. Right. Um, this was almost his undoing. Um, once in a wager with Sir William Sedley, he blacked out due to overindulgence. Ooh. And when he came to, he actually discovered that Sedley had placed him in stocks. Oh. Sedley wasn't a nice guy. But here's the thing, mate. Wood would have stayed little more than a local legend if not for a chance meeting with poet and entrepreneur, a guy called John Taylor from London. Right. Now, Taylor was passing through Kent and stopped at an inn, and just by chance, Wood was at the same inn, astonishing locals with one of his eating displays. Mm. On that particular night, it said he consumed 60 eggs, a serving of roast lamb, and several pies. 60 eggs. 60 eggs. (laughs) So Taylor looks at this and he goes, bingo. He decides Wood needs a manager Mm -hmm. and promotion. So he envisaged daily shows in London's Bear Gardens. Right. Now, the challenges, the eating challenges, they would change daily to keep the audiences entertained. But among two of Taylor's more outlandish suggestions was, well, a wheelbarrow full of tripe and eating as many pies as it would take to cross the Thames. No way. Now, to promote his new discovery, Taylor used his poetic skills to produce a pamphlet. And this is why we know about Nicholas Wood. Mm. It was simply entitled, The Great Eater of Kent, or Part of the Admirable Teeth and Stomach Exploits of Nicholas Wood of Harrison in the County of Kent. But here's the thing, mate. The show's never happened. What? Well, there's one story that Wood decided, well, he only had one tooth left, <laughs> and he decided to retire rather than gum his way through the food. Oh. So all we really know about him is Taylor's pamphlets. Now, in the second episode, we went into space, Paulie. That's right. And you've got a few more stories on the back of that, haven't you? Yes, that's right, Mikey, both in Russia and the USA. But the guy I really want to talk about in this episode is a guy called Robert Hutchins Goddard. Right. Now, he's in the US, and he's been interested in space exploration you know, since he was a young child reading works like The War of the Worlds. And even as a young man, this Goddard, he was dedicating himself working on space flight. In fact, in 1904, at his high school graduation speech, he states... It is difficult to say what is impossible, 
for the dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. That's a lot better than any speech I could have given in high school. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's right. Well, Goddard, he actually receives his first two patents for rocket technology in 1914, and he starts getting some funding mm. from the Smithsonian Institute, and um, so he's able to publish his theoretical treatise, The Method of Reaching Extreme Altitudes, in 1919. But unfortunately, Goddard's claim in this treatise that, yeah, that rockets could be used to send objects as far as the moon, they're actually widely ridiculed in the public and particularly in the press, especially the New York Times. And thereafter, Goddard, who's already a pretty shy boy, he decides to conduct the rest of his work in secret, preferring to patent rather than publish his results. And this actually limits his influence on the development of American rocketry in the 1910s, even though early rocket developers in Germany were already taking notice of his work. But fortunately, by the 1920s, Goddard's been appointed Professor of Physics at Clark University, Worcester, Massachusetts, and he begins experimenting with his liquid-fueled rockets. And the first rocket, launched at Auburn, Massachusetts, on March the 16th, 1926, it rises 12.5 metres. Now, no, it doesn't, yeah, sound, it doesn't sound too... It's a little underwhelming, Paul. Yeah, it's not too high, but it does travel 56 metres from its launching place. And now, with support from the aviator Charles Lindbergh and financial assistance from the Guggenheim fund, he's able to move to Roswell, New Mexico, and between 1930 and 1941, he builds engines and launches rockets of increasing complexity. And of course, it's here in New Mexico where Von Braun sets up shop after World War II, as we talked about in that episode, and builds what eventually became NASA. But the reason why I wanted to mention Goddard in particular, Mikey, is that despite all that earlier ridicule, he's the one who has the last laugh. And in fact, on July the 1st, 1969, the day after the launch of the first crewed mission to the moon. Apollo 11. Apollo 11, that's right. On that day, the New York Times is forced to publish a full retraction of its earlier article, which had so cruelly mocked Goddard's space rocket ambitions. And the newspaper apologises in full for the earlier ridicule. And Goddard is pronounced headline news a hero. I'm glad we landed in America there, Paul, because remember in that Rockets episode, I was talking about the Star Spangled Banner yeah. and how it mentions rockets. Yes. Well, we've had a few people contact us about you know, what exactly was the British rocket technology in 1812, 1814. Well, here's the thing. The catalyst for the British advancements in rocket technology, it comes from a military defeat on the other side of the world. Oh, right. Yeah, India, to be precise. India? Yeah. It's, it's the 1780s and the 1790s. Okay. And the British East India Company was trying to gain control of an area known as Mysore, first from Hyder Ali, then later from his son, Tipu Sultan. Mysore was a realm in, in southern India and was sort of found around about 1399. For centuries, mm. it had been a Hindu state, but mm. very multicultural. But by the time of the conflict with the British, it had become a Muslim state. Right. And with the British East India Company wanting to gain control of that area, we had the four Anglo-Mysore Wars. Ah. Now, here's the thing. Under Hyder Ali, there were some 1,200 specifically trained rocket men in his army. Wow. Under his son, Tipu Sultan, and we know this from a manual he wrote called The Faithful Mujahideen. Right. There were some 200 rocketeers assigned to each Kashun or brigade. Wow. And he deployed something anywhere between 16 and 24 of these Kushuns 
So that means up to 4,800 soldiers in his control specialised in the use of rockets. And they were trained to calculate the launches using geometry. Okay, okay, it was still a little bit haphazard. Yeah. But they also possessed a wheeled rocket launcher. Think we're talking about from World War II, you know, Stalin's organs. Mm. They they could launch multiple rockets. But this is 100 years before. Yeah, exactly, mate. This is the 1790s. Let's not forget, too, Tipu Sultan was not a guy you wanted to tick off. Right. Like, he lived by the creed, it is far better to live like a lion for a day than to live like a jackal for a hundred years. He's a tough guy. (laughs) Now, during the 1780s and 90s, under both Tipu Sultan and his father, Mm. rockets were used with considerable success in all of the battles with the British. And here's the thing, mate. These Mysore rockets were considerably more advanced than anything available to not just the British, but to any European power at the time. Right. And here's the kicker. They used metal to house the propellant, black powder, Ah, as opposed to cardboard or wood, Ah. which was being used in the West. Okay. Now, it might seem pretty rudimentary to our modern eyes, but these rockets were fashioned out of hammered soft iron. And this gives them considerable more range and greater explosive force. Mm. But like this, a standard Mysore rocket of, say, 20 centimetres in length and anywhere between... 3.8 3.8 to 7.6 centimetres in diameter. Yeah. It could hold about half a kilo of gunpowder. Wow. And it could travel over a kilometre. Mm-hmm. Some could even double that distance. In 1780, they were deployed by Hyder Ali at the Battle of Polylua, where a direct hit by a rocket on the British ammunition store turned the battle and resulted in an Indian victory. Right. They're also considerably effective at both of the battles at Siri Rangapatam in 1792 and 1799. Mm-hmm. And mate, there was even a rocket-making district in Bangalore. Right. In 1799, a young English officer recorded the terrifying effect of the rockets in the Battle of Sultanate Tope. Right. The rockets and musketry from 20,000 of the enemy were incessant. No hail could be thicker. Every illumination of blue lights was accompanied by a shower of rockets some of which entered the head of the column, passing through to the rear, causing death, wounds and dreadful lacerations from the long bamboos of 20 to 30 feet, which are inevitably attached to them. There there were even reports that some of these rockets had swords swords. attached to them. However, on the 2nd of May in 1799, a lucky British shot hit one of Tipu Sultan's rocket magazines and after fierce fighting, Tipu was shot and the war was effectively over. Mm. Which is when things really start to get going when it comes to British rocket research. After the battle, they seized some 600 rocket launchers, mm-hmm. 700 serviceable rockets and up to 9,000 empty rockets. Wow. Some of which made their way to the Royal Woolwich Arsenal to be mm. studied. By 1805, there were already experiments being done in ironclad gunpowder rockets. Mm-hmm. And in 1807... William Congreve, who was the son of the Arsenal's commandant, mm. he'd published a concise account of the origin and progress of the rocket system. Wow. And Congreve says he was motivated by the accounts of the Mysore rockets. In India, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, his work and patents led to the Congreve rockets. Now, they were first used by the British Navy in the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. In 1807, about 300 Congreve rockets were used in the bombardment of, of Copenhagen. Yep. In, in 1812, the British Navy is, is using them, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, Fort yep. McHenry. And here's the thing, too. Even though Wellington didn't like rockets, mm. he didn't think they were effective, there were actually 800 rockets on the field at the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> All right, which finally brings us 
to episode three and all those cock-up invasions of England. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, Mikey, we did get quite a few tweets, didn't we, asking yeah. how could we cover all the howlers over the centuries and not mention the Scots? Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, hashtag Bonnie Prince Charlie, hashtag Culloden 1746. They made quite a few appearances. But actually, I think if we're going to talk about Scottish howlers, the one that really stands out for me in terms of failed invasions is the Battle of Flodden. Flodden Field on the 9th of September, 1513. So 1513, we're talking Tudor times. Right, the Tudors, yeah, Henry VIII to be precise. And up in Scotland, you've got King James IV. And they've chosen Flodden, Mikey, well, for many reasons, but none more so than in terms of troop numbers, it's actually the largest battle ever fought between these two kingdoms in their history. Okay. So, up in Scotland, you've got James IV, and he's come to the throne in 1488, which is just in time to watch the last of the War of the Roses play out south of the border. Now, he's seen Henry Tudor take the throne, Henry VII, and although Henry's done much to you know, restore stability, James has also noticed that this new Tudor monarch is still pretty unpopular in many quarters. You know, don't forget, he's a notorious oh, yeah. skinflint, and there's various rebellions that break out and need to be put down. And then James has also seen that Henry's heir and oldest son, Arthur, he's died aged just 16. Yeah, we're talking about the progeny episode. Um, And you've got this rather peculiar situation of Arthur's widow, Catherine of Aragon, marrying Arthur's younger brother, Henry. The future Henry VIII, right? The future Henry VIII. Well, anyway... James himself, he's actually doing a pretty good job as king up in Scotland. And it's not long before he thinks, you know, I'm going to give the old pot a stir against the old enemy. So first up, he persuades Henry VII to let him marry his daughter, Margaret. Who's Henry VIII's sister. Henry VIII's sister, that's right. And then James starts building up his Scottish army and interestingly also the Scottish navy. And it's all part of a hope of re-establishing the classic Scots-French alliance, which of course had been going on against the English for as long as anyone could remember. Because you see, Scotland, it has actually signed the Treaty of Perpetual Peace with England in 1502, but it seems that this is really just a bit of a ruse on James's part, because really, he was merely biding his time. And in fact, he doesn't have to wait long, because the opportunity arises in 1512-1513, when it becomes pretty clear the new young king, Henry VIII, Henry VIII, he's got himself in a bit of a pickle, because he's trying to involve himself in wars over on the continent at the siege of Thuran in France against Louis XII, and he's trying to back the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. Okay, don't want to worry you here, Paulie, but but James, your mate James, he's not sounding much like a howler so far. (laughs) Okay, so far so good, but unfortunately for now, it's downhill all the way. You see, first, James sends his new Scottish Navy to join the ships of Louis XII of France at Brest in the hope of cutting off Henry and stranding him on the wrong side of the English Channel. But this fleet's a complete flop and it never gets there. In fact, it doesn't even manage to create a diversion as it's supposed to by stirring up the Irish to rise against Henry as some sort of second front. Not a great start. (laughs) Not a great start at all, especially as on board these ships of James's are all his best artillerymen who he's planning to rely on for part two of the campaign, the land invasion. (laughs) Oh, Oh, and also, not exactly the smartest guy in the room, James also sends notice to Henry VIII and the English one month in advance, telling them all about his exact intentions to invade. What? Well, to be fair, Maggie, this was medieval Europe and this advanced warning system, it was really seen as the right thing to do in terms of a king's chivalric code of honour and it was 
pretty much the common practice. Yeah, but still. Yeah, but still, exactly. Anyway, on 5th of August, 1513, an estimated 7,000 Scottish border reavers, commanded by Lord Home, they cross into Northumberland and north of England, and they begin to pillage farms and villages, and the invasion has begun. Now, like I said, Henry's in France with the main English army, so Catherine of Aragon, she's actually been appointed regent while he's away. And, you know, well, you know from that earlier episode, Mikey, yeah, I'm actually a really big fan of Catherine's. The one thing she isn't going to be able to do is lead the remaining English forces into battle. So the defence of the entire realm is left to Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey. Right. Right, so after besieging and capturing several English border castles, James, James IV, he's encamped his invading Scottish army on the commanding hilltop position at Flodden, right on what is now the Scottish-English border. Although, having said that, Mikey, it's fair to say not everything's hunky-dory because there's a later Scottish chronicle writer, Robert Lindsay of Pitscotty, he tells this story that James has actually wasted a lot of valuable time in the run-up and joined the company of Elizabeth, Lady Heron, and her daughter. So let me get this straight. Old James IV, he's a notorious womaniser, just like Henry VIII was. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Mikey. But anyway, James is at Flodden. He's awaiting the English force, which is being sent against him. But he declines the challenge issued to him by the Earl of Surrey to fight in an open field. And Surrey's army, which by this stage is some 26,000 strong, it's now in desperate need of supplies. And it's forced to follow this circuitous march in some sort of attempt to position itself at the rear of the Scottish camp. But the Scots quickly counter this by abandoning their first camp at Flodden and occupying the adjacent Brankston Hill, thus denying it to the English. But it's at this point that James seems to make his first big mistake. Because, you see, as part of the English manoeuvrings, they've sent a large vanguard, probably numbering about 15,000, and including all the artillery train, they've sent them down to cross the River Till, downstream at Twizzle Bridge. And that gives James' artillery a clear shot. But James refuses to allow the Scots to fire on the vulnerable English, reportedly saying that he was determined to have them all in front of me on one plain field and see what all of them can do. But hang on, James IV, would, he would think he's in a position of strength because, I mean, how many soldiers does he actually have against the English's 26,000? Well, he's set out with about 42,000, Mikey, and estimates confirm that even allowing yeah, for a few losses and wounded, he still would have had 36,000 men at his disposal on the day. So on paper, he's the favourite in terms of numbers and position as the battle commences. Precisely. What's more, the Scottish infantry has now been equipped with these new 18-foot-long pikes by their French allies. And these are a new weapon which have proved devastating in continental Europe. But these pikes, they require specific discipline and training. And don't tell me, the Scots haven't been trained. That's right, Mikey, not just that, but the Scottish artillery, which has these new kirtles and culverins known as the Seven Sisters amongst its mitts, while these weapons are cutting edge and able to fire iron balls weighing 66 pounds to a range of 2,000 yards, at the same time, the heaviest of these, they actually require a team of 36 oxen <laughs> to move them into place, and they're only able to fire once every 20 minutes. And then, to make matters worse, they're actually commanded by the King's Secretary, Patrick Paniterran, who yeah, may be an able diplomat, but of course has no artillery experience. Ah, because all of James's best artillery men were stuck on that fleet that never made it to France. Correct. All right, so we've got this downhill advance by the Scottish infantry. They're armed with their new pikes, but unbeknownst to them, an area of horrible marshy lands lies in their path. And this has the effect of breaking up their formation, giving the English troops the chance to bring about close quarter battle for which they are better equipped. 
Why? I mean, what are the English using? Well, the English infantry, they're still using their old, more traditional pole arms, their favoured weapon, but they've also got a large contingent of well-trained archers armed with the famous English longbow. Ah, the English longbow, the famed Agincourt classic. That's right, and then perhaps most importantly, you've got the English artillery, which on the face of it should have been outgunned because it consists only of light field pieces, you know, of quite old-fashioned design. But the thing about these smaller cannon is that although their balls only weigh about a pound, they're easily handled and capable of much more rapid fire. And it's this rapid fire, Mikey, which wins the day because the upshot is the Scots are slaughtered, James IV is killed in the fighting, become the last monarch of any kingdom in Great Britain to die in battle. And even more importantly, instructions are given to English troops to take no prisoners, which essentially wipes out the entire Scottish nobility for a generation. And that's the reason why I'm so fascinated with this battle, Mikey, because in many ways I see it as the last great clash between the medieval world and its successor, the Renaissance. You see, the Scots were lined up in the old way with all their best fighters, the nobles, the most distinguished at the front, ready for individual hand-to-hand combat, a bit like the old knights of yore. The old medieval champions. Right. Whereas by this stage, the English were using the more modern tactics of keeping all the bigwigs at the back and sending out the yeomanry to do all the dirty work. Typical English. (laughs) Yeah, typical English, exactly. But it does have the advantage of protecting their chain of command even when the battle is lost. Which is why, in my opinion, it's the Battle of Flodden 1513 rather than the other often quoted Battle of Bosworth Field 1485, which I think really marks the end in Britain of the Middle Ages. Here's another thing, Paulie. In that episode about invasions, we, we talked about Fishguard and we talked about Hastings mm-hmm. and the strange coincidence that both of them are commemorated by tapestries. Yes. Well... Got a few calls on this one. Okay. Particularly about the Bayou Tapestry. And right. here's the thing that, uh, well, I didn't know until a listener pointed out to me. It's not really a tapestry. No? It's an embroidery. Ah. It's woolen yarn embroidered on linen. In fact, 68.38 metres of linen, to be wow. precise. 58 scenes from Harold's arrival in France, the betrayal, the preparations for war, crossing the Channel, right through to the Battle of Hastings. Mm. Here's another thing too, mate. Haley's Comet makes an appearance. Haley's Com- Comet? Complete with a fiery tale, much to the amazement of onlookers. Okay. In fact, Haley's Comet had made an appearance in February 1066. Oh, that's true. Less than two months after Harold comes to power. Mm. Now, comets had always been bad omens, but from then on they became known as the Terror of Kings. Oh. Now, for years, the Bayou Tapestry, the story was that Matilda, William's wife and queen, mm. well, she'd either done it herself, which I, I really doubt, <laughs> or she had a commission. Right. But that's the romantic story. The more credible one is that it's William's half-brother, mm. Odu, the Bishop of Bayo, and later Earl of Kent. Earl of Kent, yeah. yeah. He has the tapestry made, well, basically to um, biggie up William and biggie up himself. Ah. In fact, if you look at the tapestry, Odo makes a lot of appearances. In fact, <laughs> right. they, they, they say a lot more appearances than he actually really did make at the battle. Good. But the other thing, too, is, well, of course, he is the uh, the Bishop of Bayo, mm. so that's where the tapestry ends up. Sure. But the other thing, too, is, remember how I said he gets made the Earl of Kent? Mm. Well, Kent at that time was probably the most famous place in Europe for embroidery. Ah. So it looks like the Bayou tapestry was made in Kent. And then taken back. Then taken back to the cathedral. Right. Okay, here's another thing about the tapestry, mate. There are 626 human figures. Right. But there are only six women oh. depicted in the tapestry. There are three veiled noble ladies in the main section. Right. And for reasons no one really knows, 
three naked women who appear in the borders just before the battle. I'm, while I'm talking about the borders, yeah. look, you've got lions, dogs, birds and fanciful animals. In fact, they say that the animals in the borders all relate to Aesop's fables. Ah. But in the battle scenes, the bottom border also includes dead soldiers and horses. Mm. Now, here's the big controversy, and we can't talk about the Bayou Tapestry without mentioning the two Haralds. Right. Under the inscription, here King Harold is killed, forgive my Latin, mm-hmm. hic Harold rex interfectus est, Yep. there are two figures that can be said to be Harold. Ah. The first is the one we, we all know, you know the, the guy trying to pull the, the arrow. The arrow, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Out of the eye. Yeah. But there's another figure, which is a man on the ground being hacked to death by charging Norman horsemen. Mm. Now, this Harold... Well, it actually fits into an early description. And this is a Norman description, and it's called The Song of the Battle of Hastings. Right. I'm going to warn you, Paul, it's not a very pretty song. Yeah. The first of the four, piercing the king's shield and chest with his lance, drenched the ground with a gushing stream of blood. Mm. The second with his sword cut off his head below the protection of its helm. Ah. The third liquefied his entrails with a spear, yeah. And the fourth cut off his thigh and carried it some distance away. Right. Actually, the story about Harold being hacked to death appears in many chronicles at the time. Mm. So what about the guy with the arrow in his eye? Yes. Well, here's the thing. He does appear under the embroidered name of Harold. Mm. But there's a few reasons for this. For a start, a lot of the names in the Bayou Tapestry, they're sort of near the person they're talking about, right. not directly above not them. Right on you know. it. Yeah. But the whole arrow in the eye story, well, it's, it's, it's got a couple of origins. In the 12th century, you've got a poem by a French bishop dedicated to William's daughter, Adela, mm. that described William as being slain by an arrow. Mm. This is then taken up as fact by two other British 12th century chroniclers, William of Malmesbury and Henry of Huntington, ah, as yeah. well as the Norman scribe, Wace, okay. who talks about Harold being struck above the eye before removing the arrow and then being hacked to death by the Norman knights. Ah. But here's the real thing, mate. There's an 18th century reproduction of the tapestry that shows that soldier with the arrow is actually holding a spear. Ah. It seems that the arrow was added during some 19th century French repairs. Wow. A close examination of the battle section of the tapestry shows at least seven modern, longer than 11th century arrows. Mm. And it looks like they've been added for dramatic effect ah. to bolster the medieval accounts of Norman archers at Hastings. Right. Bring it more in line with the Norman historian Wace, who talks about... Falling arrows struck heads and faces and put out the eyes of many. Ah. Here's another thing too, mate. Go on. The Bayou Tapestry has been under threat several times in modern history. Right. Well, the first two are the French Revolution. Okay. In 1792, the revolutionaries were destroying many objects all over France that related to the monarchy. Sure. And they actually intended using the tapestry as a protective screen for their ammunition carts. <laughs> no way. Yeah, the Bayou locals actually risked their lives to retrieve it. And then again in 1794, mm-hmm. the Revolutionary Council contemplated having it shredded and repurposed as decorations for a carnival float. What? Fortunately, the local council intervened and it stopped. But here's the last story. During World War II, mm-hmm. the Nazis moved the tapestry into two locations before having it shipped to the Louvre. Ah. Now, in August 1944, just as Paris is being liberated... Mm-hmm. Himmler sent a coded message ordering German troops to bring the tapestry back to Berlin. Now, there's one story that goes British code breakers intercepted this message and the French resistance regained control of the Louvre and the tapestry was saved. Excellent. There's another story that said, well, the French resistance already had control of the Louvre anyway. But um, you know me, I like a code breaker story.
course you do. Of course I do. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Mikey, you're taking us to the grand old city that is Vienna. And a very specific year you've got in mind, 1913. (laughs) 